You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. If you have your Bibles, please uh, find that text and we'll read it in a second. Um, we have been uh, walking through this book of First Thessalonians uh, for a few uh, Sundays, a couple of months. And uh, it's an interesting book in the sense that there is uh, nothing that necessarily Paul is um, fixing in this church. In fact, in the first three chapters, we see that Paul constantly commends and encourages and even recognizes and highlights the good things that the church is doing. And um, this is sort of a, a nice-looking, very, very well-behaved church. And, and Paul spends three chapters talking about that. He prays for them. He encourages them. He actually even says that they're an example to the people in their region, which is Macedonia. And, uh, but then we, when we arrive to chapter 4, the tone of the, of the letter changes a little bit. But it changes in a strange way because Paul continues to recognize that this church is doing well, yet he urges them to do things that they're already doing. Uh, and that's something we're going to see right now. So before we jump into our passage, uh, I just want to remind you this is a letter written from uh, the, or the, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a city uh, named Thessalonica. Uh, this is a, a, a city that he visited in his uh, uh, travelings around the, the first, um, in chapter 17 of Acts. And um, he was persecuted in that, in that city, but he established a church, he planted a church, and then he left. Uh, later on, he sends Timothy to check on the church, and the church is doing well. But I just wanted to give you that information if you have not been with us since the beginning. So let me go ahead and pray, and then we're going to read our text this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together freely without any uh, restrictions. And also thank you for the ability that we have to have your word, to be able to um, not only have one, but even many and have access to it and read it in our language. And I pray that um, today we would be confronted by your word. We would also be comforted by your word, and that through the proclamation of, of it, uh, you would continue to change us and uh, sanctify us so that we can be agents of your grace wherever we go. I pray for us as a church that you would allow us to continue on mission and to pursue uh, your will for us to glorify your name and be a blessing to the people around us. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. All right, so let's pray. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. And it says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, Brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
This is the word of God. And I want to I wanna highlight a few things. The, the text is very clear. He actually wants to talk about brotherly love. He actually says, now concerning brotherly love, verse 9, it, he's telling us what the main topic is. And then he again says what I just mentioned. You have no need for anyone to write to you about this. So the church in Thessalonica is doing well. They're, they're doing well brotherly love. They're loving each other well. And then he continues to say, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So they have the teaching from God. They understand the theology behind it. They know they're supposed to love each other. So Paul is saying, you probably don't have any need for anybody to tell you this because you already know the theology of it. You're already doing it. In fact, and verse, um, verse 10 says, Indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. It wasn't just that they were applying this concept of brotherly love or loving one another locally. They were also applying this concept throughout their region, outside of, their, of, of, of the four walls of their church, if their church had four walls, which I don't believe. Um, but then Paul says, But I urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to me, the first time I read this, I was thinking that this doesn't really make much sense. We typically don't tell people who are doing well to do it more and more. We typically tell people who are not doing so well to try to do it better or to try to do it more. But Paul says, but I urge you, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So there's a clear command here. There's a clear emphasis on brotherly love, on loving one another. And this is not the first time Paul says it. In fact, every single writer of the New Testament encourages us as Christians to love one another. This is a topic that is so common in the, in the New Testament that we can actually find it a hundred times. About 60 of those times are straight commands for all of us Christians to love our brothers and sisters within the church. The context of what Paul is talking about here is the church. So when I, every time you hear the word love in this section or in my preaching today, it's going to be about loving the person sitting next to you. It's about loving the people within the church. I know that we're also supposed to love the people outside of the church, everyone, but in regards of today's topic, it's about one another within the church. Sixteen times we are explicitly commanded in the New Testament to love one another directly. There's straight, explicit commands to love one another. There's 44 more times in which we are commanded to show our love to one another in different ways. In fact, the list is 100 verses. And I want to read some of them to you. For instance, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's Romans 12, verse 10. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, all, so you also must forgive. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. 
Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Listen to this next one. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's Hebrews 10, 24. And then one of my favorites, and probably the hardest ones, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's Philippians 2, verse 3. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's 1 Peter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is so prevalent in the New Testament that there is something called a theology of one another. This is something that we are constantly commanded to do. It is clear that this is a very important thing for us to do. And I want to note, this is not a suggestion, this is a command. In fact, it's the second greatest command. This this means for us that we don't live for ourselves. So if you think about this, and I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he replied and said to love God, right? And we would all agree with that. But he didn't just answer the question by stating the first commandment. He also added the second commandment, and he said this is equal as the first one. And he said to love your neighbor as yourself. So command number one is to love God. Command number two is to love others. And it stops there. There is no command in the Bible, there is not a single verse in the Bible that teaches us to love ourselves. Now, I know that there's some liberal theologians that use the second commandment because it says love your brother or your neighbor as yourself as if that is an indicative or a a, a command to love ourselves. But in reality, that passage implies that we already love ourselves enough and says in the same way you love yourself, which you already do, love your neighbor. So we don't have a command to love ourselves. The second commandment assumes that you already love yourself. And this is the basis of the theology of one another. Uh, In Latin American theology, this is known as for otherness or the theology of for otherness. The concept that when God created us, he didn't create us for ourselves. He created us for somebody else or for others. And that means for God first and for our neighbor second. Cuban historian and theologian Justo Gonzalez actually says this. It is not good to be alone. An individual alone is not the person God intended. We are created in for otherness. It is only when that for otherness takes place that we are the human beings that God intends. This for otherness is for God as well as for creation and for other human beings. This for otherness is a concrete expression of our responsibility towards God. He actually argues that sin is a violation of that for otherness. 
Sin is a violation of God's image in us. So, Paul is actually telling this church, I know you're doing great, but guess what? It's not enough. You need to keep going. You need to do it more and more. And this applies to everyone. So if you're not a believer here, I just want to note, there are studies that from a sociological perspective that actually teaches that some of our, the biggest fulfillment that we can get as human beings, these are not non-Christians, come from serving other people. This is part of our humanity. We were created to do things for others. That means that we are to live for one another. So even if you already do it, even if you, if, if you tell me as a Christian, I've been a Christian 30 years and I've loved everybody, I've tried. Well, Paul is saying today, you need to do it more. Even if you understand the theology of it and you have a deep conviction of loving community, Paul will tell you today, you need to do it more. Even if you serve the people around you and you're constantly in the church and you've been in, in uh, putting chairs and playing music and childcare and all that stuff, Paul is saying you need to love more. And the reason why is because this is probably the easiest thing for us to lose. This is probably the easiest thing for us to miss. In fact, we are so good at missing this and losing this that we can serve in church, help with kids, playing the band, even pastor, and have zero love for others. We can actually serve God, not even for God, for love, because we love God, but because we want recognition. We humans are experts are turning something good into something super selfish. Just because I'm a pastor, it doesn't mean I love you. That is something I have to remind myself constantly of. Just because you come here and you serve, it doesn't mean you're doing it out of love. Right? And we know this. If you're married, you know this. There are things you do because you better do it. Right? And it's so easy to lose the love. It's so easy to just go through the motions and do it for any other reason than to love others. And that is what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying serve more. Paul is not saying do more at church or host more community groups or invite people over to your house. He's not talking about doing. He's talking about actually loving people. And you know why this is the easiest thing for, all, for us to lose? is because, because people will fail us. In fact, people have already failed us. And not only people will fail us, we will fail people. And he is saying this even knowing this. The very essence of the church, the very essence of the concept of the family of God is based on love. 
So regardless of where you are right now in church, we are all commanded to love. We are all commanded to first establish that we are called to love. We're not necessarily called to do. We're first called to love. And this is something that we need to rearrange in our lives constantly, daily, maybe hour by hour, maybe minute by minute. It's assess why we're doing what we're doing. We are called to love God, but specifically in this text, we are called to love one another. So regardless of where you are right now in church, you are commanded to love the people next to you. Especially the ones that are difficult to love. That's where, how is it, what's the American saying? The rubber meets the what? The road. Sorry, I, I struggle with sometimes those sayings. But that's where you find out who really loves. It's easy to love the people that are just like you, right? It's easy to love the people that think the same way, the, the same way you think. It's easy to get along with people that are your age. You know, that, that, that's very common in churches. Let's, let's have community groups based on hobbies. And everybody gets along because they have a hobby in common, right? The middle age, the bikers, the hikers, the whatever, and everybody's best friends because, yeah, we have something in common. But that's not the reality of community. The reality of community is the older person needs to get along with the younger person. And the single needs to get along with the married. And the liberal needs to get along with the conservative. And the black with the Asian, and the Hispanic with the white, and the lower class with the upper class. That is community. That is love. That's when you actually utilize the supernatural love that you have been giving. And this is what was happening in the first century. People from all kinds of places were getting together, and Paul is saying, you're doing great, but you need to do it more. And that's what we are called to do. That's what Paul is calling us to remember. We are to love the people in our church that are different from us. We're to pray for others' needs. We're to open up and share your real, your real struggles in love. We are to listen. We are to comfort each other. We are to forgive this is a safe place. The church is supposed to be a safe place. In where it, it, this is a place where you can find people to, that love you and where you can be accepted as well and that you can accept others. And this, this is the time for us to do it as a church. The elephant in the room is that we are going through a crisis. We're going through a difficult time. And this is the moment when this becomes a reality. Are we loving each other more and more? I know there's a lot to say about how to love one another, but I'll be specific. And Paul actually gives us three specific things on how to love one another. And this is very important because something was happening in the church of the Salonica, specifically the third thing that, Paul's, uh, the, that Paul commands us to do. And, and let me just address that real quick. And so 
in the church of Thessalonica, there was people who were very interested in eschatology or things uh, of like the last things, the coming back of Jesus and, and everything, everything of that nature. They were very interested in that to the point that they were so expectant for Jesus to come back that they decided that they were no longer going to waste their time working or producing. So something that happened in the church of Thessalonica is that some people just became idle. They, they were just lazy. And they were utilizing the second coming of Jesus as an excuse to not work. And some of these people were actually becoming a burden to the people in the church. Because if you remember in Acts 2 and Acts 4, we are told that the church used to gather and share everything in common. Remember? People were selling their possessions and giving them to other people. That's what they were doing. But these people be, be, became a burden to the church. So Paul addresses this in, in actually in verse 11. And he actually says that we must love one another by not being a burden, work with our hands as he instructed us. So that's what he's getting at. That's the very specific issue that was happening in the church of Thessalonica. In fact, if you read the second letter of uh, Paul to the, to the Thessalonians, you will see that in chapter 3, he spends an entire uh, almost chapter talking about this issue. And he famously says, whoever doesn't want to work, let him not eat. That's in, in, in 2 Thessalonians 3. He's addressing this. But other than that, he goes on to give, a, give us two more specific commands that relate to how to love one another. The first one is interesting, and, and he says in verse 11, and he adds to loving one another to aspire to live quietly. So on top of asking them to love one another, he adds, and also to live quietly. And it seems a little bit like a different kind of command. But if you actually take a look, a deeper look at it, the word quietly in this text literally means to be silent, to calm something down, to rest, to stop trying or to desist, or to live a tranquil life. That's what this word quietly means. And in different versions, it's translated in different ways. But the basic idea of to aspire to live quietly is to aspire to cease to do something, to make space for something else. So you could take it as live quietly, uh, as maybe stop talking, but not just for the sake of stopping, but rather for the sake of being able to listen. You could actually take it as maybe not just uh, stop going so fast and filling your schedule so much for the sake of just not doing anything, but actually maybe for the sake of loving other people. The idea behind this is to make space for others. Living a quiet life in the sense that you can actually pay attention to other people. Paul is not telling us to live without talking or to put your music low. low. That, that's not the concept. The concept behind this is get rid of the noise in your life so that you can pay attention to what really matters around you. And there's something that I've noticed. Uh, I've lived in the DMV for almost 14 years now. I've lived in Maryland. I've lived in D.C., 
and I've lived in Virginia. And there's something that I can sincerely say as a critique to the East Coast, at least what I know, is we are, and I say we because I've lived here enough that I'm starting to do that, we're very much into efficiency. We love being efficient. We love people being on time. I've never seen people that are so good at knocking tasks and uh, having agendas and calendars. And I've never heard of people starting at 7.03. And I was like, what in the world? Like the first time I heard that, I was like, can you say that? Like, it's not 7? No, it's 7.03. And I, it blew my mind. So efficiency has been something that I've noticed people really um, love. And I'm reading a book that I think speaks to this when Paul talks about living a, living a quiet life. And, and the name of the book is Unhurried Living, An Unhurried Life. Um, there's many books about that. Dallas Willard is one of the first ones that introduced the concept. There's another book that I've, I heard that you guys are uh, familiar with. is the, the um, forgot the title. But anyway, it's about eliminating hurry from your life. So this one is An Unhurried Life. And so it, the author is Alan Fadling. And he puts this concept in this way. One of my own personal tendencies is to overemphasize efficiency in my approach to living, relating and working. I too often find that my over-the-top focus on efficiency tends to keep me from obeying the great command to love God fully and to love my neighbor freely. I think of the words of Gerald May, quote, some people are so caught up in striving for efficiency that love seems like a luxury or even an obstacle to efficient functioning. Taken far enough, this makes for the ominous prospect of people who are very unloving and very efficient at what they do, unquote. I surely don't want to be known as unlovingly efficient. And then he says this, relationships can be messy and not very efficient, but loving relationships are at the heart of the gospel. In the language of efficiency, love is willing to waste time. So when Paul is telling us you need to aspire to live a quiet life, he's basically calling us to slow down and to allow for us to have time to look around and to see what really matters. And that's something that we need to do. That is an important element of loving one another. The times when I am the most frustrated as a parent is when I have a lot of things to do. Those are the moments my son is sitting right here and he knows when I'm in a hurry, he has the ugliest dad he's, he could ever have. I'm irritable. I want to get things done. Everybody needs to hurry up and I have time for nobody. And they're my kids and my wife and I love them. I, I will give my life for them, but I can be the meanest when I'm in a hurry. And that's, that's what happens to all of us. My assessment of American society is that we're all in a hurry. We're all doing something. So of course, we're not going to be the nicest. We don't have time to be the nicest. We need to get things done. We need to take our kid. We need to have a meeting here. We need to go to the work. We need to do. There's so many things we need to do. We don't even have time to love one another. 
It is a luxury that we don't have. And Paul is saying, aspire to live a quiet life. Maybe we need to relax our schedules for the sake of others. Maybe we just need to slow down and say no to other things for the sake of loving others. Maybe it's okay to be late. Maybe it's okay to not finish everything on time for the sake of others. That's the first thing that Paul tells us. Love one another more and more and aspire to live a quiet life in relationship to loving one another. And the second thing he tells us is we also must love one another by minding our own affairs. And this is not minding your own business and not worry about other people. What Paul is getting at here is basically the idea of accomplishing something in your own life first. So when, when it comes to remember that the context of this, the, 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 the whole the, the topic of this is to love one another. And within loving one another, he says, live quietly and also mind your own affairs. And the idea behind this is before you start working on other people, work on yourself. As you love others, come into relationships aware of your own flaws before you come into a relationship aware of other people's flaws. This is literally Matthew 7, when Jesus was saying, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus said the exact same thing. When it comes to loving one another, we are excellent at pointing people's, uh, pointing people's flaws, pointing out people's flaws. And what Paul is saying here, when it comes to loving the people in the church, we first have to notice us. Our job is to love the person in front of us, not to change them. Did you know there is not one verse in the Bible that calls you to fix your brother or to change your brother? There's plenty that call you to pray for them, to exhort them in love, to bear with one another, to forgive them, to be patient with them. But there is not one verse that says, please make sure that they are doing the correct thing. We are not in charge of changing people around us. We are in charge of loving the people around us. So maybe the next time we interact with someone who disagrees with us, instead of focusing on their mistakes and their flaws, why don't we pay attention to why, how we're reacting to that? Why don't we pay attention to our anger rising up? Why don't we pay attention to our self-righteous rising up? Why don't we pay attention to the rejection we're feeling towards the people that think differently from us? But instead, most of us, just like me, spend time thinking, hmm, what can I say that will make that person change that way of thinking? Maybe we just need to think, how can I love this person in front of me instead of how can I fix them? Paul is calling a church that is already loving each other well to do it more and more. First, by living a quiet life. 
Second, to minding their own affairs. And third, to work hard with their hands. And we already talked about that one. But then he answers the question of, why is Paul asking us to do this more and more? And the answer is in verse 12. And Paul says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. The reason why we're supposed to love each other is because we have witnesses. There's a world watching us. The world around us, the unbelievers, the community is watching us, the Christian church. And guess what? We have a responsibility towards them. In fact, they are our mission, correct? And Paul is saying, love one another more and more because people are watching you. And he is echoing what Jesus said in John 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to our love one another. And verse 35 says, by this, by loving one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. The reality is that if we fail to love one another, we are losing our mission. We can't reach people for Christ if we don't love one another. That becomes a problem, an obstacle to the gospel. In fact, our very mission flows out of the love for one another. There's a, a, a very prominent theologian named Samuel Escobar who actually says that Jesus asked the Father to work in us so that we can become a community deeply united by a bond like the one that unites the Father and the Son in the Trinity. Jesus pleads with the Father that we can love each other just like He loves the Father. Mission, then, grows out of fellowship and community. Our mission flows out of us, our church, our community, our fellowship. And then he says, it should never be a solitary exercise undertaken by an individualistic hermit. Mission, the real mission of the church, is all of us loving each other, sharing that gospel that unites us, that grace that we give to others because we have received it from Jesus to the people around us. If we don't or we can't love our neighbor, or the people inside our church, then we cannot be the church. If we don't love one another, we won't walk properly before outsiders, and they'll never know that we are Jesus' disciples. First Peter 2 says it again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our testimony as a church is important for the people around us. Our testimony as a community of people who are supposed to love one another makes an impact, has an influence on the people around us. And as a church, especially right now, 
Because of what we're going through, we must rise up and love one another. People are watching. How we behave during this transition is going to be a testimony to the people around us. How we love one another is going to be a testimony to the people around us. I know there's tensions, there's sadness, there's disappointment, there's hurt feelings, different kinds of expectations, different, different kinds of opinions. And that's all okay. But the big question is, how are we going to love one another even more? Are we going to be an example of love to the people of Manassas? Are we going to be an example of love to the people that we serve? Believe me, I did not choose this passage because last week we had our town hall. This was a book that was chosen in April of this year. And this text happened to be the one for today. I did not find, how am I going to speak to the church about this? I believe that God is saying something to us. And I pray that we have the ears to hear, including me, and the humility to recognize it. Because if we're honest, it's really hard to love one another. It's really hard. We don't think the same way. And our sin gets in the way. We cannot do it in our strength. We're selfish. We want things our way. But that's the benefit of, benefit of being a Christian, is that we can be honest. And we can say, you know what, it's hard. Because there is hope in Jesus. This is not an invitation for you to try harder. This is an invitation for you to understand that you can't do it on your own. That left to our own devices, we would all end up fighting and hurting each other constantly. But we have a hope. We have someone who realized how weak, how frail, how lost and sinful we were and came to do it for us. And that is Jesus. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to give up everything. He left his amazing throne in heaven and came to this earth. We rejected him and he stayed. We punished him and he stayed. He healed us. He fed us. He loved us even though we were outcasts. And he ended up dying on a cross for us and forgave us of our sin. He said it as he was hanging. He said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus did it on the cross for us. He is our hope. He is the one through whom we can now do it. Because of the grace that God showed to us in the life and death of Jesus Christ, we now have, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not our power, but the Holy Spirit's power, the ability to now share that grace to others. We forgive because we understand that we are forgiven. 
We give grace because we understand that grace has been given to us. We can stand next to somebody who we don't like because Jesus is with us all the time and he doesn't like a lot of the things we do. We don't do it based on our own thinking, our own strength. We do it because it was done for us. Jesus defeated sin and death in our place. He has now taken us and making, he made us his sons, his daughters. And he's given us new life. He's preparing a home for us. He is getting everything ready for the perfect heaven and the perfect earth that he's going to make for us. And we don't deserve it. And because we have been given that, we should react in that way to others through his power. That is the beauty of the gospel for us. So now, in him and through him, we are able to extend that same love to others. And if you are not a Christian and you are here and you're listening to me, I want to say to you, this Jesus who came and died for me, who I'm a sinner, he also did it for you. And if you would like to talk about that and, and respond to that or acknowledge that, I would, I would love to, to, to explain this further. But this invitation of free, eternal life and forgiveness is available to everybody. You don't have to get your, out, your act together. You don't have to fix your life. Jesus doesn't put any buts before he accepts you. He says, come to me, and I will give you life. So I want to invite us all that through the power of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we should love each other even more and more. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your call to all of us. Lord, I pray that this would be the mark of our church. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is excelling in loving one another. Lord, I ask that our testimony before the people outside would be a testimony of love. I pray that we would rely on the power of your Spirit to love one another more and more. Jesus, help us understand how much you have forgiven us so that we can extend forgiveness to others. Jesus, help us understand how much grace you have, been, um, you have given to us so that we can give to one another. Help us understand that we were created for others. And Lord, I pray that through the power of your love in our lives, 
people's lives would be transformed and reached through this same message, the message of reconciliation, the message of grace, the message of the gospel. Help us, God, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray.